You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to the Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's forum contains a term we don't expect to hear in a discussion of Oregon history, lynching. It's a recording of a Salem City Club luncheon speaker, Taylor Stewart. She's the founder of the Oregon Remembrance Project, which researches and presents some of the many chapters of history that were forgotten or brushed aside, because frankly, they don't always show our forebears in a good light. Alonzo Tucker was lynched, deliberately killed, in southwestern Oregon, almost 120 years ago. The details of that incident were brought to light, and a remembrance was held earlier this year in Coos Bay. Good day. I'm Sharon Pearson, past president of Salem City Club. Our current president, Ron Ekus, is off on an adventure. Very happy that you've joined us today for the second program of our 55th year of keeping our community informed. Salem City Club depends on our members and friends who support us through membership and donations and volunteer hours. Several local businesses support the club as members and sponsors. In particular, we want to thank our supporting business sponsors for their generous donations. They are Busy Bees Real Estate, KMUZ Community Radio, Lugene Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. And now, today's program lead, Cindy Condon, will introduce our speaker. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Sharon, and thank you for that. On June 19th, a remarkable ceremony was held in Coos Bay. The community gathered to remember and mark a tragic lynching which occurred almost 120 years earlier. This event was a big step allowing remembrance and beginning the process of reconciliation for Oregon's of a past tragedy. In order to grapple and reconcile our collective history, we must first be aware of historical actions and events. Today's program will help us remember a single but important part of our history, which took place in a small community on the Oregon coast, but colors us all. As the program committee contemplated this program, we were struck by how many of us, many longtime Oregonians, were unaware of this piece of our history. We thought it an important piece to bring to you, especially in light of what we currently are witnessing with respect to racial justice in Oregon and across the country. I couldn't be more pleased to introduce Taylor Stewart, founder and executive director of the Oregon Remembrance Project, who will help us remember Alonzo Tucker's important place in Oregon history and the work of the Oregon Remembrance Project. There is more information which is available on the invitation or the program notice you received, which tells you more about Taylor and the Oregon Remembrance Project. But I know you've come to hear Taylor. So with that, Taylor, you're on. Great. Thank you, Cindy. Hello, my name is Taylor Stewart, and I'm pleased to be joining you today. 
Three years ago, I was faced with the impossible question. How do you reconcile a lynching? How do you find justice for historical injustice? Well, three years later, I believe I finally have the answer. The story starts the summer after I graduated college in 2018. I went on this trip called the Civil Rights Immersion where we went to various locations of historical significance. We traveled to Alabama, Mississippi and Arkansas. I was especially looking forward to the portion of the trip where we'd be going to Montgomery because we had plans to see the new Equal Justice Initiative museums. You see, I was a big fan of the Equal Justice Initiative because of their executive director, Brian Stevenson, and I had heard about these museums in one of my college classes. In April 2018, the Equal Justice Initiative opened up two museums. The first was the Legacy Museum, which chronicles the link between slavery and mass incarceration with the belief that slavery didn't end in 1865, it just evolved. The second was the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, or the Lynching Memorial. The Equal Justice Initiative has documented nearly 6,500 lynchings of African Americans between the years of 1865 to 1950. When you enter the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, you are confronted with these six-foot-high pillars that have the name of the state, the name of the county, and then the names of everyone who was lynched in that county. I had always known about lynching in the abstract, but to actually read the names of people who were lynched in this country made this history personal. I had no idea the magnitude of it all name after name after name. What got me most was seeing names with the last name Stewart, knowing that simply time and place separated me from the name on the pillar. As you make your way through the museum, the pillars, which are originally perpendicular to the ground, begin to come off the floor until finally they're hanging above you. There's something powerful about having to crane your neck backwards to continue reading the names, causing you to visualize the way many of the victims of lynching died. As you continue, you begin to learn more about what was the culture of lynching in America. You learn that minor social transgressions could get you lynched. You learn that asking for a fair price and trade could get you lynched. You learn that sometimes when the white mob couldn't find who they were looking for, they would simply lynch an innocent bystander. When you stand in the center of the museum and look around you, you are surrounded by the pillars symbolizing the crowd that was so frequently present at these events. At this spot in the center, our tour guide told us about her hometown. This was a small town in Alabama. In this small town, businesses close early on Wednesdays. Not your big stores like Walmart or Walgreens, but your local stores, your mom and pa stores. They close early on Wednesdays because that's just tradition. Well, that tradition started so that everyone could make it to the lynchings on time because lynchings were held on Wednesdays. And despite the history of that tradition, businesses still close early on Wednesdays in the small Alabama town. I was awestruck. The National Memorial for Peace and Justice was the most heartbreaking part of our trip. I couldn't believe that no one had ever told me about lynching in America before. I couldn't believe that I had gotten 22 years in this country knowing nothing about this history, and I couldn't believe that no one was talking about this. 
Why do we not talk about lynching in America? We talk about 9-11 as America's first experience with terrorism, but that's simply not true. There had long been an era of domestic terrorism in the United States, nearly 6,500 lynchings. That's more than just nearly 6,500 individuals. That's nearly 6,500 times the entire African-American community sustained an act of domestic terrorism all in less than 100 years. This should really alter our perception of what life was like in America at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. Lynching left thousands of African-Americans dead, imposed racial subordination, forced the exodus of millions from the South, and diminished African-Americans in this country's social, political, and economic life in ways that can still be felt today. Visiting the National Memorial for Peace and Justice was a profound encounter with history for me, an encounter that I wanted to bring home and share. Luckily, in conjunction with the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, the Equal Justice Initiative started the Community Remembrance Project. The Community Remembrance Project aims to work in the communities where the lynchings of African Americans took place to find healing and reconciliation through a sober reflection on history. I couldn't believe that I had to go all the way to Montgomery, Alabama, just to learn that an African-American man named Alonzo Tucker was lynched in Coos Bay, Oregon in 1902. There is an interest form online about getting involved with the Community Remembrance Project. Now, I would love to say that when I first saw that, I immediately was like, sign me up. How can I help? But that wouldn't be true. In fact, I was too nervous to fill out the interest form. After all, this was the Equal Justice Initiative and I was a recent college grad with no relevant experience. I figured, who am I to really think that I could be of any help? So I decided I wasn't going to fill out the interest form. But thankfully, two encounters from the rest of my trip inspired me to change my mind. The first was a quote from John Lewis, longtime civil rights icon and congressman from Georgia who asked, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? This taught me the fierce urgency of now. The second was the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. Even though I was deeply moved by the two Equal Justice Initiative museums, my favorite museum from our trip was the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum because here they just focused on Mississippi history. So there was no mention of Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, individuals who we kind of deify and are hard to relate to. Instead, the museum told the story of everyday Mississippians who did their part to pave the way for justice. And so there at the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum is where I learned that you don't have to be an extraordinary person to do extraordinary things. And so those two encounters gave me the courage to reach out to the Equal Justice Initiative. And three years later, here we are. I'll talk a little bit more later about what we've been doing in Coos Bay. As for now, I am here to tell you what I wish was told to me so that when you go to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice one day, you won't have to say, how come no one ever told me about lynching before? I am here to tell you about the legacy of lynching, how we can find reconciliation, and how lynching is still 
a relevant topic to us today, because despite what we may like to think, lynching was not the work of a few hooded vigilantes. Whole communities participated in the ritualistic killing of African-Americans. The legacy of lynching was not hidden in the shadows of the night. The legacy of lynching was broadcast in broad daylight on the courthouse lawn. The era of lynching may be behind us, but we as a nation won't ever be able to move past it until we confront this legacy. Lynching was domestic terrorism. And in this era of domestic terrorism, African-Americans had to live under the constant fear that their actions could result in a lynching. White individuals accused of identical violations of law or custom were rarely subjected to the same fate. Lynching increasingly became a racialized tool of oppression over the African-American population. This history should make us all feel uncomfortable. The barbarity, impunity, and spectacle of lynching are difficult to grapple with. What's most horrifying is the celebration of lynching, the way it was exalted in the white community. When you see pictures of lynchings, it's not the black bodies that are most disturbing, it's the sea of white faces looking on that are most ominous. The way they smile, the way they lean into frame, I know no greater depths of the depravity of humanity than lynching in America. Black suffering became white entertainment. So. What precipitated lynching? Well, a variety of things. One of the most common was the accusation of sexual assault, which was largely driven by the pervasive fear of interracial sex. During this time period, the mere accusation of rape was enough to incite a mob and any action that could remotely be interpreted as a black man seeking sexual contact with a white woman was subject to this pervasive fear. Something as innocuous as a black man accidentally bumping into a white woman could result in the accusation of sexual assault. This would be because the myth of the black male rapist permeated society as it was a widely held belief at the time that white women couldn't willingly consent to sex with black men. When famed anti-lynching advocate Ida B. Wells challenged this myth about lynching, and asserted that when in fact there was a charge of rape, in many instances, it was really a consensual relationship, a mob burned down her newspaper and threatened to lynch her. More than half of the Equal Justice Initiative documented lynching victims during the Jim Crow era were killed under some accusation of committing murder or rape. We cannot overstate the way the deep racial hostility of the time inspired increased suspicion on the black community whenever a crime was discovered, even when little evidence tied the accused to the crime. However, it wasn't just accusations of a crime that resulted in lynching. Violating the rules of the social order also had fatal consequences. There was a saying at the time that what the law cannot do, the noose can. African-Americans were lynched for things like speaking disrespectfully to a white person, refusing to step off the sidewalk, reprimanding white children, arguing with a white man, and other perceived social infractions. African-Americans had to live with the constant knowledge that they could be lynched where they intentionally or unintentionally violated social norms. I personally 
cannot imagine what it was like to be black and to have to travel into the white part of town knowing the slightest misstep could get you killed at any moment. But even more than that, I can't imagine going into the white community with the knowledge that that community was capable of a public spectacle lynching. What I tell people is to remember what it was like the very first time you saw the video of George Floyd, to remember how sick it made you feel to watch someone plead for their life is that life was being taken away from them. But then to imagine that rather than feeling sick, you found that video pleasurable. Not only that, but imagine you found it so pleasurable that you would get together with your friends so that you could all enjoy the video together. Imagine getting a whole crowd of people together on that Minneapolis street so that you could all be there live for the killing of George Floyd because that's what public spectacle lynchings were like. Public spectacle lynchings were those in which large numbers of people sometimes in the thousands, gathered to witness the pre-planned killing of an African-American in a manner that included prolonged torture, dismemberment, and or burning of the victim. These were carnival-like events that included food vendors, photographs, and the selling of body parts. It was especially popular at that time to take a picture of the lynching that would then be turned into a postcard that could then be distributed to friends, family, or merely kept as a souvenir. Sometimes the mob would discuss how they were going to distribute the lynching victim's body parts in front of the lynching victim while they were still alive. And those body parts would then be kept as cherished family heirlooms and passed from one generation to the next. Public spectacle lynchings were brazen, celebratory acts of sadism that implicated the whole white community and sent a clear message that Blacks were undeserving of even the slightest bit of human dignity. This would be because lynching was always meant to send a message. Lynching was about much more than simply killing someone. It was meant to terrorize. You know, my biggest takeaway from the first week of the Derek Chauvin trial was how traumatized the bystanders were from George Floyd's murder. Witnessing that level of callous violence has left an indelible impact on the psyche of these individuals and they will live with this PTSD for the rest of their lives. I can't even imagine the psychological toll that resulted from white mobs forcing other black people to witness lynchings. Sometimes the mob would specifically harness this terror and disrupt any feelings of safety in one's community by conducting their lynchings within the black part of town or many other times dragging the body of a lynching victim behind a car throughout the black community to continually instill this fear. And in the face of this terror, Sometimes Black people were lynched simply for asserting their own humanity. The targets of these lynchings were frequently sharecroppers, ministers, and community leaders who resisted being mistreated or espoused Black advancement beyond the confines of the Jim Crow era. These are the lynchings that bother me the most, because if I were doing this work 100 years ago, I would probably be one of these lynching victims. Lynching 
became a tool to keep African-Americans in a state of subjugation and repress African-Americans' fight for economic power and equal rights during the 19th and 20th century. It is difficult to fathom what life must have been like for African-Americans living during this time. One can even begin to understand the collective trauma associated with these events, having to watch your friends, your family, your community lynched over and over again. We talk about how difficult it was on the Black community to see Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd all killed in such quick succession. I can't even imagine the psychological toll that would have taken had those all been brutal lynchings. I believe we must pay witness to this era of domestic terrorism. We cannot say enough about the psychological wounds inflicted on the African-American community, nor can we understate the psychological damage the white community passed on from generation to generation in this socialization of violence. Nor can we ignore our state institutions' indifference, complicity, and endorsement of lynching. And so, as we talk about lynching today, I am here to tell you that we are not as far removed from lynching culture as we would like to think. Because if we really want to see how lynching has survived, we need not look further than the American death penalty. Our death penalty is the most direct legacy of lynching because at the same time lynchings in the United States were going down, executions were going up. Lynching simply moved indoors where all white juries and expedited trials carried out the same verdict as the lynch mob. During the 1930s, African-Americans accounted for two thirds of all of those executed in the United States. Between the years of 1910 to 1950, African-Americans made up 22% of the South's population, but 75% of all of those who were executed in this region and this disproportionality continues to today where African-Americans make up 13% of the population, but 41% of those who are on death row. And when you consider the fact that of that 41%, nearly all are African-American males, yet African-American males only make up 6.5% of our population, we have to ask ourselves, how do we get from 6.5 to 41%? The color of your skin still plays a crucial role in whether our society believes you deserve death or not. When we look at someone and are comfortable saying, you deserve to die, that decision is tainted by racial bias. In 2014, there was a study at the University of Washington that looked at jurors in Washington State and found that jurors were three times more likely to recommend a death sentence for a Black defendant than for a white defendant accused of similar crimes. Nearly every study that has looked at the issue of race of victim and capital punishment sentencing has found that you are more likely to get the death sentence if the victim is white this is especially true if the defendant is black. We still treat the accusation of black on white crime differently. Between 1930 to 1972, 455 individuals in the United States were executed for the charge of rape and 89% were African-American. 
no white man in the history of the United States has ever been executed for the rape of a black woman or girl in a non-homicide offense, ever. Of the 316 individuals who have been executed since 1976 for an interracial homicide, 93% have been about black on white crime. We still put little value on the crimes in which African-Americans are the victims. Of the 172 individuals who have been exonerated from death row since the reinstatement of the death penalty, meaning individuals who were wrongfully arrested, wrongfully convicted, wrongfully put in prison, wrongfully put on death row, over half have been African-American. We are still trying to kill innocent Black people. In Arkansas, it was recently discovered that the DNA on a murder weapon did not match that of an African-American man who had maintained his innocence over the 22 years he was in prison. Only problem is Arkansas executed this man in 2017. The states in the South plus Texas and Oklahoma had the highest number of lynchings. And since 1976, those states alone have accounted for 87% of all executions in the United States. The same region of the country that lynched is the same region of the country that executes. We are too busy asking ourselves the question, does this person deserve to die for their crimes, that we haven't first asked ourselves the question, do we deserve to kill? Because if the answer is no, then it doesn't matter what the answer is to that second question. Did you know Germany doesn't have the death penalty? Germany knows that given their history, it would be unconscionable for the country of Germany to systematically execute citizens, especially if a disproportionate number of those citizens were Jewish. The world would be in outrage. We in the United States would be outraged if that were the case. So where is that same outrage when given our history, the United States systematically executes its citizens and a disproportionate number of those citizens are African-American? Where is the outrage when given our history as a state, a disproportionate number of African-Americans sit on Oregon's death row? Where is the outrage? Because I don't hear it. The moral outrage of future generations is hypocritical. We condemn the institution of lynching while failing to condemn its legacy. Everyone wants to say that if they had been around during the lynching era, they wouldn't have stood by. They would have said something. They would have done something. Well, I can tell you, lynching is still going on. You're still standing by, still not saying anything, still not doing anything. We are burdened by our history of injustice, but more importantly, we are burdened by our history of silence and inaction. However, I am here to tell you it doesn't have to be this way. We have the power to recreate our relationship with history and rewrite the ending to history stories. That's what we've tried to do in Coos Bay, Oregon. Our collective memory and our collective consciousness hold power. What we choose to remember, as well as how we choose to remember history, is a reflection of the soul of our society. We cannot change the past, but we can always change our relationship to the past. We must 
reconcile the historical discrepancy between who we say we are and who we actually are. So for three years, I worked with the community of Coos Bay to engage in the requisite truth telling required to get to reconciliation. This truth telling began on February 29th, 2020 with a soil collection ceremony for Alonzo Tucker near the spot where he was killed. We collected two jars of soil, one that was sent back to the Legacy Museum in Montgomery and the other that is now on display at the Coos History Museum. Hidden in this soil was the story of Alonzo Tucker. The soil was gathered from three locations and each bit of soil tells part of Alonzo Tucker's story. The first bit was gathered from underneath the mudflats of the local docks where Alonzo Tucker spent the night hiding from a mob that had formed to lynch him after he had been accused of sexually assaulting a white woman. The second bit was gathered from Front Street where Alonzo Tucker was repeatedly shot and left incapacitated before a noose was placed around his neck and he was thrown in the back of a cart with the intention of lynching him from the spot of the alleged assault. However, they wouldn't make it that far as Alonzo Tucker would die from the gunshot wounds. So the third bit of soil was gathered from where the old Marshfield Bridge used to be, which is where the mob strung up Alonzo Tucker's dead body from a light pole in front of a crowd of 300. Even children were a part of the lynch mob that left Alonzo Tucker's body hanging there for several hours. Despite this all occurring in broad daylight without a masked man in the crowd, no one would ever be held accountable for the lynching of Alonzo Tucker. News of this lynching made headlines across Oregon and most newspapers openly sympathized with the lynch mob. Following this event, African-Americans would then flee the Coos Bay area over fears of future violence. In 1974, a Coos Bay World newspaper reporter interviewed three white men who were boys the time of the 1902 lynching, and they provided eyewitness accounts. All three men believed Alonzo Tucker was lynched over a consensual relationship with the woman who accused him of assault. We began this truth-telling work with the soil ceremony, and we continued that work by permanently installing this history into the geographic memory of Oregon. On June 19, 2021, we unveiled an Equal Justice Initiative historical marker in Coos Bay to memorialize Alonzo Tucker and the thousands of other African-Americans who were lynched in this country. This visible acknowledgement serves to memorialize Alonzo Tucker in the collective memory and collective consciousness of Coos Bay. Alonzo Tucker's life may have ended from a light pole on the Marshfield Bridge, but that's not where his story has to end. At the unveiling ceremony, we had over 600 people collectively paying witness to this injustice, double that who were at the 1902 lynching, and we meaningfully added a new chapter to Alonzo Tucker's story. By giving voice to this story in such a permanent way, we hope to get closer to reconciling our relationship with history. However, we find reconciliation for this lynching not by our acts of remembrance, but by how those acts of remembrance change us. We find reconciliation not by our knowledge of lynching, but by what we do with that knowledge. We find reconciliation not by reflecting solely on the past, but by critically evaluating the present. We started with remembrance. Now, we must move to repair the fundamental question of who our society believes deserves death 
because the answer continues to be disproportionately African-American. Public remembrance only goes so far. It requires action in the present day to repair the harms of the past. And I don't believe we can truly find reconciliation for lynching until we put an end to the heir to its legacy, the death penalty. Three years ago, I set out to reconcile the lynching of Alonzo Tucker, and that is still my goal. I've just learned along the way that it's going to take more than a few acts of remembrance, because I don't believe we can truly reconcile this lynching while a disproportionate number of African-Americans remain on Oregon's death row. As a lynching state, I believe we have an imperative from history that compels us to right this wrong. I accept the things that I cannot change and I change the things that I cannot accept and I cannot accept. Race being the largest predictive factor in capital punishment sentencing, I cannot accept the continuation of lynching, and most importantly, I cannot accept that no one is talking about this. So, I need your help to reconcile the lynching of Alonzo Tucker because I can't do it by myself. I need your help to end the death penalty in Oregon. Because if you ever wondered what you would have done had you been around during the lynching era, I can tell you the answer is what are you doing about lynching right now? So there are three things you can do to help this cause. First, follow the Oregon Remembrance Project on social media, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Second, share the death penalty conversation slides that you can find on the Oregon Remembrance Project's website. But third, and most importantly, I just need you to tell someone about lynching and the death penalty. The death penalty in Oregon can only be ended with a statewide initiative. So we end the death penalty in Oregon one conversation at a time. And I'm imploring you to start these conversations. I need you to engage in more honest dialogue on the historical roots of our present day inequities because our failure to confront the origins of systemic injustice is what has allowed those injustices to evolve. People ask me if I really think this connection between lynching and the death penalty will change hearts and minds. Well, let me tell you, I know it does because it changed my mind. I wasn't always this person. I grew up in a conservative white evangelical environment and I was a product of that environment. I missed out one of the most important days of my life in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected the first black president of the United States because had I been old enough, I would have voted for John McCain and Sarah Palin. I graduated high school a registered Republican with the dream of becoming a tough on crime prosecutor. I used to be a passionate supporter of the death penalty. I gave a speech my junior year of college in favor of capital punishment, and I'm not that old, so that wasn't that long ago. But then I learned about lynching, and I learned about its connection to the death penalty, and I realized that there is no justice unless there's equal justice. Equal justice under law. That's what it says on the Supreme Court, but our system that we depend upon to dispense the most ultimate form of justice is too flawed to produce anything but injustice. I would say it's broken, but it's functioning exactly the way it was intended. 
as a replacement for lynching. We lose hope when we stop believing individuals and communities can change, so I choose to remain hopeful. You may not think you can make a meaningful difference, but I believe you can. One conversation at a time, one friend at a time, one community at a time. I believe that you can be a part of a grassroots movement to repair the harms of the past and end the death penalty in Oregon. It just takes the political will. I learned from my trip to the South that it's okay to believe in something even when you've never seen it before. And it's okay to see something even when others don't believe in it. So I'm asking you to believe in your own change-making ability, to believe in repair, and to believe that we can find reconciliation with history. You may not think you're qualified to have these conversations, but I believe you are. If I've learned anything, it's that it's less about being the right person for the moment as it is about doing the right thing for the moment. Even Martin Luther King Jr. didn't think he was the right person for the moment, but he acted anyway because he knew it was the right thing to do. On December 5th, 1955, a little known pastor accepted the nomination to become president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, gave his first large public address, and the rest is history. Stepping into that moment is what made him the right person. So I'm asking you to step with me into this moment. When I was younger, I used to think that it was remarkable people that did remarkable things. However, the older I've gotten, the more I've realized that it's remarkable things that make remarkable people. And I believe that you can be a part of something that's remarkable. Don't underestimate your ability to be the change you want to see in this world, because let me tell you, you don't have to be an extraordinary person to do extraordinary things. Thank you. You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm Forum producer Stella Schaffer. Alonzo Tucker, a black man, was lynched in Coos Bay, Oregon in 1902. The Oregon Remembrance Project, in collaboration with the Equal Justice Initiative, the city of Coos Bay, and the Coos History Museum, memorialized Alonzo Tucker in that southern coastal town last June. We're listening to Taylor Stewart outline that part of the state's history in light of today's continuing struggle for equality and racial justice. KMUZ thanks Salem City Club for sharing the audio recording. Wow, uh, what a call for action. Thank you for sharing that with us. Good afternoon. I am George Dyer, City Club member, and I'll be handling the question and answer portion of our program today. And now to get started, I'd like to ask the first question, Taylor. As a former social studies educator, do you see an opportunity for the Oregon Remembrance Project and your other work to impact Oregon history and Oregon and national education for young people? Oh, uh, that's the hope. Um, I have the dream of being able to take my kids to see the historical marker in Coos Bay one day and have them go, 
oh yeah, I learned about that guy in school. And so my hope is to get connected with the Department of Education to do these sort of historical reckonings that uh, young people can be a part of. Um, I'm talking to some folks about um, how can we create these sort of civil rights pilgrimages here in Oregon. Um, having been so moved by that trip to the South, um, I came back and I was like, where's the Oregon equivalent? Um, and so I would love to be able to create opportunities for students to travel to Coos Bay to, to learn about this history, but more importantly, uh, what it looks to recreate one's relationship with history. Uh, there's two important dates on the historical marker, uh, 1902, when the lynching occurred, uh, and then 2021, when the historical marker was unveiled. Um, and so we can't understand the whole story without the 2021 date. Um, and so my hope is to um, provide young people the inspiration that while we may feel burdened by our history, there are things that we can do to reconcile it um, and to be able to learn from the folks in Coos Bay what it looks like to deal with a difficult part of our history. Um, I learned from working with Coos Bay that we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done and reconciling historical harm requires tapping into all else that we are. And so it was a beautiful scene at the historical marker unveiling to see all the people that came out to be a part of this. Um, and so my hope is to be able to do this work in other communities uh, and especially to have young people involved. I believe we have a question from Jan. In several historical references, we have read about Salem's hanging tree do you know anything about such a tree? You know, um, I have unfortunately heard multiple stories of hanging trees um, across Oregon, um, you know, uh, both of which sort of go back to Oregon's time as a territory uh, where there were less sort of judicial systems. Uh, but also the more modern um, end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, where we did have functioning criminal justice systems. Um, and, you know, uh, I always say Oregon has equal opportunity racism. And so uh, the there was at least most likely more, one lynching of an African-American in Oregon, but that's not the only racial group that was terrorized by these sort of extrajudicial uh, killings. Uh, there were mass killings of, of Native Americans and, and Chinese laborers. Um, and so we really do have a, a deep history of racial violence that I believe we need to reckon with here in Oregon. Um, and as we sort of have these these things in our community that we remember as lynching trees. Uh, we need things in our community that remind us of our commitments towards justice. Uh, my hope is to put these touchstones of justice in communities across Oregon uh, so that we have these, these positive things that are a part of our community, that are a part of our, our history uh, that we can look at fondly um, as opposed to being weighed down by our only historical memory being related to things such as lynching trees. Cindy? Thank you, George, and thank you, Taylor. Um, I am curious, in, the, in today's paper, there was an article about the Supreme Court, the Oregon Supreme Court, Court ruling on um, certainly the death penalty. And I'm just wondering what your thoughts are with respect to the moves Oregon has made with the passage of Senate Bill 1013 and now the, the uh, court's decision. Oh, man, I, uh, the anti-death penalty community was a buzz yesterday. Um, and, you know, what I get from that is 
let's move up the timeline towards a, a full repeal. I was thinking like, ah, maybe we might have to do this 2024. Um, but I'm, I'm ready to move up the time um, and to uh, really get this off of Oregon's books for good. Um, and so you could say, why is there sort of a hurry or an impetus to do this when, you know, in many ways, most of the, the current death penalties will be, will be vacated. Um, I still think that there's something powerful to symbolic gestures. Um, and that just because it's symbolic doesn't mean it doesn't carry value. Um, we have sort of a, a long history of this in Oregon. Um, it was symbolic uh, in 1926 when we finally got rid of our Black exclusionary laws. It was symbolic in 1959 when we ratified the 15th Amendment, and it was symbolic uh, in 1973 when we ratified the 14th Amendment. And so just because something's symbolic uh, doesn't mean it doesn't still carry value. Um, and for me, this is especially important um, because, you know, I don't think Alabama ends the death penalty on their own volition. Um, I really think that it's going to take conversation and pressure from the rest of the United States to really affect the areas where this is needed the most. Um, and so I would like to see Oregon be a part of this national conversation. Um, and we can't be a leader in this uh, while the death penalty is still in our books. Um, and so I'm optimistic about the timeline with which we can move up uh, a full repeal um, and definitely follow the Oregon Remembrance Project to stay up to date on uh, the progress towards that. Hans, did you have a question? Hello, Russ. Uh, Taylor, thank Russ Beaton, City Club member, and I'm on the program committee with these other people. Thank you for your presentation. The question I would have, do you have specific strategies for us for extending this message into communities that don't have the experience that you had uh, in Coos Bay? That is, Coos Bay, uh, the, the incident happened there. And uh, yes, we could search for historic data in, in any of our communities. That was, I think, the motive for the hanging tree in Salem. Um, but how do you approach this best in general? Is it through the awareness of lynching, per se, or as you have moved on through the awareness of the death penalty now? Um, you know, uh, for me, I feel that um, in order to get to the death penalty, uh, there I, I call it... Um, staircases of acceptance. Um, uh, and so we sort of start with this, this first staircase of there are difficult aspects of our history that we tangibly can't do anything about because it, it's a part of history. But uh, while we can't change those actions, we can always change our relationship to that history. Um, and so then entering in uh, a specific instance of let's, we need to have this conversation about lynching in Oregon because, um, you know, it is a part of, you know, the racial demographics of our state were affected by this. Um, this happened in 1902 and African-Americans fled the Southern Oregon region uh, because of that. And so we start this conversation on, we need to, to understand this history so that we can understand how it still lives on today. Um, and so I, it's where I start with this in order to get to the reconciliation part, we have to engage in the truth. Um, and so we engage on these conversations about lynching in America, which is a very untold aspect of our history, uh, so that we can move towards these ideas of 
Um, let's do things in our present day to repair and, and put an end to those historical racisms. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that, um, so what I, what I do is rather than tell a community who they're not, tell them who they can be. Um, and so working with the community of Coos Bay, uh, you know, Three years ago, if you had Googled Coos Bay lynching, uh, you would have gotten a variety of stories over the last three decades that are like, did you know there was a lynching in Oregon? Um, but now, if you Google Coos Bay lynching, you get all these news stories about the reconciliation work. Um, and so the idea that we can rewrite the ending to Alonzo Tucker's story, uh, because right now when we talk about Alonzo Tucker, we talk about the legacy of lynching. Uh, but my hope is to get to a point where one day when we talk about lynching, we're talking about the legacy of Alonzo Tucker. Um, and so I really believe in this truth, repair, and reconciliation model of, of dealing with aspects of our history. Um, and so my hope is that we can apply this work to, to other aspects of Oregon history. Um, a lot of the work that I've started right now has to do with Oregon's history of sundown towns. Um, and so I've started working with the community of Grants Pass, Oregon, to do something regarding their history as a sundown town, uh, with the goal of rewriting the ending to the story of a sundown town and creating an ending where a formerly exclusionary community can become one of the communities most intentionally committed to inclusivity because of their history. And so doing this sort of intentional community building, uh, culminating in the installation of a historical marker, uh, one side talking about exclusionary laws in Oregon and Grants Pass, and the other side functioning as Grants Pass's stated commitment to inclusivity. Uh, and so, you know, I believe that we can do a lot of this historical reckoning um, with the idea that we can add a new chapter um, to these stories. And I, for me, that has been what has empowered folks to um, take onus. Um, and so, you know, my hope is that uh, if you wanna do work specifically around lynching, uh, that if you use the death penalty conversation slides that you can find on the Oregon Remembrance Project's website, um, it'll be a starting place to have these conversations with folks in your community. Thank you. I'm just curious, as you were uh, working with Coos Bay, were many of the people that you work with, they, were they aware of Alonzo Tucker and, um, and what, what their response to, to you and your work and bringing it forward was? Yeah, um, you know, I, I would say most people in Coos Bay had never heard of the story um, before. Um, and so uh, when I showed up three years ago, um, it was not, yes, kid from Portland, we would love to put a historical marker about the worst thing that's ever happened in our community. Um, but instead, it was this, uh, this gradual process of bringing them along, similarly to what I just described of you know, we can't change the past without, uh, we can't change the past, we can change our relationship to the past. Um, and so over time, uh, grew a community that realized that there was something better for us after we do this sort of historical reckoning, um, because there's, there's, there's fear associated with uh, having this sort of conversation of, we don't wanna be defined by this, um, but over time, folks were able to understand that we can't change this, but we can be defined by the, the reconciliation work. Um, and so 
I primarily worked with the Coos History Museum. Um, and later this month, the Coos History Museum is putting on a workshop for other museums on diversity programming. And that's a sentence that would not have existed three years ago. Um, but there's something about doing the work um, and asking these sort of impossible questions, which is where the, the transformation happens. Um, and so the answer to was Coos Bay the right community to reconcile lynching? No, but it was the willingness to take on that work that made it the community that could reconcile lynching. Um, and so, you know, dealing with any sort of difficult history is it's it's hard for to get people uh, to be willing to to have these difficult conversations. Um, but what we've seen in Coos Bay is the fact that having these conversations has helped the community and been a benefit uh, to the community. Um, some of the biggest antagonistic forces at the start um, were by the end, some of the biggest supporters of this work. Um, and it meant a lot to um, give folks a new sense of pride in their community, especially folks who grew up there and were like, when I first heard about this, I never thought this could happen in Coos Bay. Um, but to be able to show that, you know, I, I'm an optimist. Um, I believe that no matter where you go, you can find enough people who are willing to choose justice if given the opportunity. It's just a matter of getting them to see where there's been injustice. Um, and so that's what we did in Coos Bay. We, we, we talked about the injustice of history, uh, but then we took some tangible steps to, to uh, find justice for historical injustice. And so um, if this work can happen in Coos Bay, it, it can happen anywhere. Um, and I really believe in everybody's capacity to be a part of this work. Thank you for having me and being willing to have this conversation on a Friday afternoon. Okay. Many more programs are in the works. Visit SalemCityClub.com for the most current information and to register for our programs. Thank you for attending today. You've been listening to Taylor Stewart, founder of the Oregon Remembrance Project, reviewing some history long lost to the past that many would like to forget. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. The whole program is archived on their website. You can pull it up again and listen at SalemCityClub.com and learn more about supporting and joining the Salem City Club. This is Community Radio, KMUZ, Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Midwillamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening. <music>